welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden, and today I'm talking to James Dupper, Chief Investment Officer at Majady Asset Management. James, very good to see you. And I can tell from your expression, I think you're right, especially that I pronounced your name correctly. Forgive me, I'd just like to ask you about it because it's uh, a bit of a poser for people like me. It's spelt uh, de uphor, uh, D-E. E-P-U-H-A-U-G-H sounds and looks very grand. Where, where, where does the name come from, I wonder? Well, as you can imagine, Gavin, it's been pronounced many, many, many I can imagine. Time, so one gets a pretty, um, a pretty thick skin to that. Um, it's a Huguenot name. Um, so I suppose back in the day, we were new joiners to this, uh, this great isle. And like a lot of people, joining this great isle strived and you know it's like any name it's great to have something distinctive and just as we started this podcast talking about it you know that is if you like what often happens so it's it's great in a way Exactly. It, it, it helps to break the ice. And obviously, you've got an incredible heritage there if you're tracing your, if it's a huge known, huge name going back uh, centuries. So, um, well, thanks for that. Well, you're an experienced fund manager and, um, you know, you joined what is the forerunner of Majedi uh, Mercury Asset Management uh, back in the, the late 80s. So you've been uh, investing in the UK stock market for a very long time and you've previously uh, had a CityWire rating for the management of uh, your open-ended funds. So that's all good. But I think it's fair to say that your name uh, has got a higher profile since around about March or the end of last year, actually, when you were appointed to run the Edinburgh uh, Investment Trust, which um, we're going to talk about a, a fair bit, I think. Um, just for those people who don't know, that's uh, Edinburgh is a, uh, a city, but it's also an investment trust, an £800 million UK uh, equity income investment trust. At the end of the last year, basically sacked uh, the previous fund management group, Invesco, uh, and the fund manager, Mark Barnett, who uh, had, uh, it's fair to say, had they had lost its way over recent years. So um, you've been in charge now, you and your uh, colleague, uh, your deputy, Chris Field, have been in charge for about six months then. Isn't that right, James? Yeah, indeed, um, Gavin, and it's been a it's been a hell of an interesting period to be managing the trust over. And I'm pleased that you know, in what has been um, there've been some quite interesting chapters while we've been managing this. Let's just say, I'm pleased to say that the our performance in NAV terms has been you know decently ahead of the the all share. So we've made a good start, and I think as you rightly say. Edinburgh, obviously, in deciding who to appoint to this prestigious mandate, I think they were looking for a number of things. Um, they were looking for someone who had came from a firm which had a team-based approach. I think they thought that was very important. So Majedi very much ticked the box there because what we have is a team of 18 fund managers and analysts all contributing to the various different funds which we manage. So, you know, as you rightly said in the introduction, uh, it's myself, my co-manager, Chris Field, but also it is the array of fund managers and analysts, which I, you know, draw on to actually 
create the portfolio for, for the trust itself. Um, one of the things that it seems the board may have been attracted to you, it's a big decision moving from one fund manager uh, to, to another, uh, particularly when there's a style, a, a, a way of investing has been out of favour and Mark Barnett was more of a value investor. And you very much seem to pitch yourself at Majedi as being pragmatic, a bit of kind of, you do all sorts of styles. You're not, you're style agnostic, perhaps, uh, is, is one way of describing it. So that might have been quite canny, shrewd of the board to, um, you know, choose somebody who could be an each way bet because there's a massive debate going on at the moment. As you know, the growth style has been doing very well, value a lot less well. So to appoint somebody who's claiming to be able to do a bit of both is quite a good thing. But how do you do uh, a bit of both? How do you do recovery plays, growth plays, value plays? How, how does that work? Yeah, so, um, you know, my approach, as you rightly say, Gavin, is, is to be a flexible investor. The idea behind that, really, and it's, it's very much imbued in the whole of the Majedi funds, is that, you know, if you, if you hitch your wagon to a particular one style, you, you do consign yourself to be out of favour for potentially quite long periods. So if you are a flexible investor picking, as you say, some growth companies, some value companies, uh, which you think are the good ones, you then have what I think is the best chance of actually outperforming over a three and five year period. And in appointing Majedi and myself and Chris to this trust, obviously, uh, the board and Willis Towers Watson did a lot of analysis on uh, my and the firm's long-term record. And what they saw was this flexible investment, which drove uh, a compound 2.7% outperformance over the last 14 years, actually was well-based and a good basis to appoint uh, me and Majedi to take the trust over the next um, three to five plus years. The long-term returns track record does 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 look good. Uh, the medium-term return, you know, since sort of Brexit referendum votes, uh, perhaps is uh, is less clear-cut. But just going back to your point about you've had a good start and the net asset value of Edinburgh over six months, which is broadly the time you've been in charge, that uh, is up nine percent. I was seeing uh, the other day, and that beats the FTSE All Share, which is up by six percent. But the problem is, that's great. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's a good start. But the shares are flat, so it feels to me that you know the shares are still on, on quite a wide discount, thirteen percent below that uh, underlying net asset value. So it feels that uh, investors are taking a, a wait and see attitude to see how how you and Chris get on. What are you telling them? What's your message? to them to kind of encourage them to uh, be more positive about the stock. Yeah, well, we're a really interesting juncture because, as you rightly say, although the um, discount to NAV has moved in a a bit, it's still languishing at a slightly uncomfortable level of uh, 13%. And it's very much my project to narrow that discount over time. I think there'll be a number of factors which will drive that. Firstly, achieving outperformance. As you rightly say, we've made a good start there. So that's the first tick. And obviously, it's important that I continue that over the next year, two, three, four years hence, because that will be the biggest indicator that actually will drive a narrowing of that discount. I'm also, um, and this is, if you like, part of that, I'm also um, with my colleagues spending time with shareholders and prospective shareholders, because the reality is, if When we do a presentation, we talk through the portfolio, they like the themes, 
And as you rightly say, the flexible multi-theme approach, uh, actually, it's something of a bargain at 13% discount to NAV because um, you're the guru in the trust sector. You know that actually if you can get to an area where people begin to rate what you are doing, that will narrow a lot. So actually we're at a very, very interesting uh, juncture, I think, in terms of uh, the shares. And that is the message which I'm beginning to broaden uh, with my colleagues. Okay. Well, as you say, yes, 13% does offer a bargain. That's the great thing about investment trusts. Thanks very much for the uh, the, the kind comment. I mean, as a coup to uh, to, to to beat off um, some stiff opposition to to win the mandate for uh, for Edinburgh, there was also another Invesco uh, investment trust, Mark Barnett Run Investment Trust, that was up for grabs at the same time. Perpetual income and growth. The board of that trust has decided to actually call it a day and 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 merge with uh, Murray Income, but. Um, uh, did you did you pitch? Did Majadi pitch for perpetual income as well before that decision was made? Because there was speculation that you could win both and they could end up being merged. Yes, there was spe- speculation, but I can say definitively, Gavin, the answer to that is is no. Okay, interesting. Well, thanks for clarifying that. So Edinburgh was the the one you you went for and and you got. Now we're going back to the uh, the position of the shares and and then the discount and whether investors are waiting to see what happens. I mean, when you talk to investors, I'm sure they're raising the issue of the dividend. So Edinburgh is in a very competitive sector where you know paying good dividends and growing dividends is important. The trade body for the sector, the Association of Investment Companies, has created this sort of brand, really, around dividend heroes, uh, investment trusts with very long track records of growing dividends. Edinburgh's not got the longest track record, but it's been growing its dividend for over 15 years or so, I think. But the shares are yielding 6%, and we're in the middle of this dividend crisis. So I think you know people are really looking to know what the dividend policy is going to be at Edinburgh. You know, you're going to maintain... It's not your decision, I appreciate. It's the board's decision and you're the fund manager. But what are you advising them, the board, as to the prospects for UK dividends? Let me put it that way. I mean, Gavin, I think as you rightly say, look, this is a decision for the board. We've obviously been working with them, providing the data they need to make that decision. And they're going to be updating the market next month on this issue. In terms of that, you know, as you rightly say, dividend income for this trust and, you know, many other funds has had uh, a near-term setback. But, you know, under realistic scenarios, the dividend income bounces back relatively well. Also, investment trusts do have uh, reserves. And we're very much conscious that, you know, this fund has a a dual objective, both capital growth beating the all share and also producing, you know, dividend income. So, you know, this is this is something which frankly the board has got to decide on. You know, I've very much been focusing on uh, putting a portfolio together which um, not only produces decent in- dividend income, but also has the ability to achieve capital growth. And that's kind of what's beginning to come through, as you rightly say, in the six-month level of outperformance. Yeah, so the, the decision next month that's going to be announced is going to presumably come with the Investment Trust's half-year results. It's, uh, it seems sort of finally balanced. People can't going to work out what might, which way it might go, because on the one hand, 
you and the board seem to be emphasizing, you know, sustainable dividends. And um, Majeli talks about a total, its approach to creating a good total return, which is a combination of the capital growth you just mentioned and the income from the dividends, which again might lead you to think that there's a slight less emphasis on dividends going forward. On the other hand, as you also said, you know, the Edinburgh went into the dividend crisis with one of the best income reserves, revenue reserves in, in the sector. So on the other hand, the, the trust could tough it out. So uh, people are waiting to see what happens. It's not your decision, but you know, the trust is yielding 6%. Is that a defensible level? Can you pay a 6% yield and achieve attractive capital returns as well? I think in terms of how we're approaching this, we're structuring a portfolio to achieve, you know, both capital growth and a degree of, of good dividend income that sets up the trust medium term to achieve a good level of dividend income. Now, the reality is, as you rightly say, over the near term, there is this shortfall and the board is going to decide how to deal with that. And, you know, the reality is, Gavin, this is kind of their decision. We're providing them with all the granular data, but a bit like, you know, you may read those Bank of England documents, which have the fan charts. Don't oh, you? the infamous fan charts, which show everything from disaster to Nirvana. You know, these are, these. this is a classic fan chart decision, which is in the board's hands and they will make the right decision, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they will. You're paid to run the, run the money uh, and not to set the dividend. But uh, so more broadly then, how long do you think the dividend crisis is going to go on for? There's lots of talk about companies are, have been using the, um, you know, are rebasing their dividends because they were probably, pay, you know, over-distributing before coronavirus pandemic um, changed the world. That would suggest that this is more than just the, the impact is going to be beyond this year. How, how long do you think, how fundamental do you think it is for the dividend culture in this country? I think what's happened to corporates both here and elsewhere is they've been faced with a near-term outcome, which, you know, the risk papers didn't really anticipate, really. And so many of the facilities weren't quite structured in the way they perhaps should have been if, if they had perfect hindsight. And so I think many boards will adopt a slightly more conservative attitude than they had beforehand. That said, it's interesting if I look at the Edinburgh Investment Trust portfolio and you know look at the percentage which the dividend was paid you know as expected it's a high percentage frankly and if you look at those if you like in the sin bin the dividend cut or the dividend cancelled and the rebate lightly if you like a rebase lightly you know it's a relatively small percentage what sort of percentages are we talking about well, we're talking about um, 50, 55% for, um, for the dividend paid as expected. The dividend cuts only about uh, 6%. You know, so the, you know, it's, not, it's not a big, big percentage. Um, and then you've got the sort of the ground where effectively some companies have either deferred the dividend, but have actually subsequently paid the dividend. So you've got companies like uh, BAE Systems there, Direct Line. So, you know, I think to call it a crisis is, is overstating the issue, really. And the number of companies who really were genuinely over-distributing is a relatively small amount, actually. 
Okay, it's interesting to hear you sound, you know, sort of relatively but positive uh, or downplaying the, the crisis. You know, fair enough. But um, th- those figures you were giving there, the 6%, is that reference to the portfolio? You've made a lot of, you and Chris made a lot of changes to the portfolio that uh, Mark Barnett had put together. So yeah. when you say 6%, are you referring to the, 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 well, basically, the portfolio basically, or the old one? Um, the new portfolio. So basically the dividend cuts really are BP and Shell. Yeah. And that's um, just under six, well, it's 5% of the portfolio in total at the moment. Okay. Well, listen, uh, t- talking about uh, the dividend and, and, and the prospects for sort of uh, uh, equity income, um, you, you mentioned the t- two oil companies. It sort of brings us on to another topic that, um, you know, you've, uh, of, of environment, of ESG, of uh, the environment and social governance, because, you um, one of the big changes you've made on taking over the trust was to take out the tobacco stocks that were a very big uh, feature of Mark Barnett's style and, and, and over a long time have been big cash generators and very useful for a, a trust that wants to pay a good dividend. So you've taken them out on, on ethical grounds, basically. Is, is that correct? We've taken them out on a couple of grounds. Firstly, the tobacco industry, if you look, if you take, I I really like taking sort of long perspectives on things. And if you think about what's happened to the tobacco industry, a huge chunk of their money is made in, in, in obviously, the developed world, the likes of the States and elsewhere. And what happened in the courts early 2000, 2003, they obviously had these big class actions, they settled, and that set in motion, if you like, a pact which allowed um, the likes of BAT to gradually raise its margin from approximately sort of mid-teens to the sort of 40s. Um, And this has been an incredibly profitable industry to be in. They've put a lot of leverage into it. And now what they've got, obviously, is a transition where effectively, you know, cigarettes are in decline and what they call the reduced risk products, you know, vaping and the like, are taking over. But the reality is, you know, cigarettes are really good at oligopoly for all the obvious reasons. Whereas actually, you know, if you or I wanted to start a a vaping product, we wouldn't need nearly as much as if you wanted to start the next Camel or whatever, or Marlboro. So actually the barriers to entry have dropped a lot. So as a business, I'm not sure tobacco is as strong as it was. Um, Then, as you rightly say, there are issues in terms of the health issues that, you know, smoking leads to both here and in the developed world. And we talked about sort of ESG, but really, uh, you know, Majedi, when I'm talking about or thinking or analysing a stock in conjunction with, with the team, you know, we don't suddenly go talk about what you might describe as sort of the fundamentals of the company and then change to sort of ESG issues. They're it's all part and parcel of the same approach. It's a really integrated process. All the stocks we look at, it really, really is a nexus because I hear so many people talk about stocks and then they talk about ESG. The reality is now with capitalism and all its issues, any company needs to actually renew its license to operate. I mean, a good example is, you know, today as I was popping into the office, I was reading, you know, The Guardian and um, Ikea was in there. And, you know, they were talking about 
putting this project in where, you know, you can take your, you know, your chairs back and if they're nearly new, they'll go 50%. And, you know, to do that and process that, it's a bit of a nightmare for IKEA, but they realize they need to do it actually to uh, burnish their sustainable credentials. And, you know, so for example, one of the, you know, relatively big holdings we've got in the trust is a company called Dunelm. You may know it, it basically does homewares, anything from sort of furniture to sort of duvets and the like. Yeah, no, no quite well, but uh, how is it ticking uh, an ESG box? It's, it's, a, it's, a, good, it's a good business, but uh, yeah, yeah, what's it doing there? This is the thing. So what, we've, what we want to make sure is that as it grows, it ensures that its supply chain is on a sustainable basis. That's to say that the furniture that it makes in, in Vietnam is actually produced in a way that the uh, supplier is audited, and it's audited not by a consultant that Dunelm employ, but actually by you know people that they actually know, if that makes sense. So, for example, in you know in August we had a conversation with the Dunelm uh, supply uh, representative to to ensure that to ensure that effectively what Dunelm is doing is doing in a sustainable uh, way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So all of this gets, kind of gets wrapped up in the sustainability. You know, is the is the business model sustainable? Is it the way it's treating its its customers, its employees, you know, and its investors? Is it all sustainable for a long term investment? That that all makes a lot of sense. But I guess some of the investors, some readers were you know, querying the kind of emphasis on uh, the kind of ethical side in relation to tobacco. Although, of course, you've outlined there are uh, big question marks about the financial prospects as well. But um, sort of querying why you know, tobacco had been dropped and then contrasting that with the, the approach on oil stocks, where you've sold BP, but you've uh, held on, you've halved the position in Shell. But it's interesting, you've held on to Shell uh, after its uh, huge historic dividend cut. And, and obviously, the oil companies have got um, big questions to ask, answer around uh, their environmental influence. Yes. And I think, um, I think the boards of both BP and Shell are acutely aware of the need to um, renew, renew their licence. And, um, you know, to give you an example, obviously, BP had their, um, their strategy pivot, where essentially, you know, they are uh, going to invest, you know, pretty substantial amount in renewables. But it is quite a difficult ask to change the whole business very quickly. It takes time. These are long duration assets. But both the companies are making headway and the energy they produce is increasingly at low carbon. We engage with them. These are not very big positions for the fund but we are all going to need energy. And these companies do produce energy in a, in a relatively low carbon way compared to uh, many of their peers. Okay. Well, listen, um, thanks for that. We're going to come back and talk about, about some more stocks uh, a little bit in a while, but I just wonder, just go back to the kind of overall, uh, your opinion on the outlook for the, the market, because uh, uh, in July, uh, you were speaking to the uh, AGM, the annual general meeting for Edinburgh, uh, doing it online, I suspect, but um, like a bit like this. 
But you yes. were um, sounding very confident about a, a V-shaped recovery, uh, you know, a, a sharp drop, uh, a, re- a sharp recession, and then a quick rebound. You know, w- with the country uh, seemingly into a second phase or second wave of, of the pandemic, uh, is that still your view? Well, the reality is, you know, one's got to layer on the near-term um, pickup in cases. But I think, you know, one can over-obsess about the short term. The reality is, as you know well, share price is essentially a series of DCFs over a number of years, right? So it's a discounted cash flow for those people. Apologies. So discounted cash flow over a number of years. So essentially, we are talking about, you know, a three to six month period where the cases probably are increasing. We then obviously have the vaccine readouts, which are coming through. But the reality is in the near term, you know, at a total level for a number of economies, you know, the V is a little bit blunted. But but critically, you've got policy going full bore. And within the overall economy, there are lots of sectors and verticals where, make no mistake, there are massive Vs going on. So if you think about, you know, cars, housing, mortgages. We talked about furniture. A lot of people have bought pets. So, uh, you know, DIY, supermarkets. You know, there are so many Vs for us to go after that actually it's a really, really sort of ripe opportunity. And then the other thing to bear in mind is actually where things are uh, tougher. And this is where, if you like, our deep fundamental research comes in where things are tougher, actually in the short term, a slightly tougher environment can actually, although it sounds a bit tough overall, can actually be better for uh, a corporate because it can lead to some of the competition waning. You know, I have this strong view that actually this this really tough environment is, if you like, really sorting the wheat from the chaff. And when we when we emerge from this, they're going to be those really on the front foot. You know, the Dunelms of this world. And if you yeah, if you look at it through the lens of something like Dunelm, if you think about their competition, you know, the department stores, you know, what M and S used to do in furniture. A lot of these companies are not the strong businesses that they were. So for Dunelm, a well-financed, well-invested business, you know, actually, quietly, this tough period is actually rather good for them. Yeah, no, I can, I can see uh, I can see that argument um, well, but it's just you've got to hopefully pick the one, the survivors rather than the ones that are going by the wayside. But um, how defensive uh, are, are you being at the moment or are you becoming uh, more positive? It sounds like you're looking ahead to the, to the upturn. Yes. So, so this is a really interesting question, Gavin, because um, I think part of the overlay, if you like, of the investment management industry, decamping, working from home, all this mega uncertainty is actually that people have become very defensive. And I think with fund management, you need to sort of think about what might be in The Guardian, the FT in six or so months' time. That's the second time you've mentioned The Guardian, by the way. Yeah, well, those, those I don't are, know if I often come across fund managers that read The Guardian quite so uh, avidly. I think, it's, it's, I think it's, it's very good for layering on the societal aspect, which I think is so important in investment. 
And so I do do that. And I, I actually really like it anyway, actually. Full it's stop. Good, it's good for the football as well. Yeah, so. yeah, it's good for lots of things. Um, but yeah, so 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 in essence, what we've got there is that when you layer that on, think about what might be in the paper six or so months' time. Actually, it's not impossible that you've got perhaps, you know, better news in terms of how we cope with this vaccine. You know, we've got nine heavy-duty project readouts on different forms of vaccines using different forms of technology in the next uh, three or so months. And so if you get a better outcome there, you do want to actually be a little bit careful about being over-defensive because So if you think about last time round, they were a bit more nervous about inflation. This time round... They're they're, throwing everything at it. Absolutely. This time round, you know, if you read Powell's speeches, the reality is in the States, it's very interesting, in the States, what he wants to do is get unemployment down to where it was. Why Why that is there? Because, you know, there is a schism to a degree and segments of US society and um, the poor and certain segments demographics are being hit worst by that and that is causing societal issues and he and his colleagues want to run that full ball so you could actually have a period where we have a better outlook um, in terms of how we deal with this virus and at the same time, you have policy making going, you know, pretty strongly. So as you, a, at the AGM that I mentioned, you were very impressed with the action that the European Central Bank had, had taken because it's got launched this huge recovery fund that's, uh, you know, doing a lot of heavy lifting, the same sort of thing. Yeah, you know, Bank thought, of England and the Fed. Very, very interesting because why I thought that was interesting is, you know, the Fed have consistently been pushing quite strong responses to crises. But I think Europe and particularly Germany, which is a key decision maker, obviously have seared in their mind what happened with the hyperinflation in the 20s. And so they are quite cautious or have been. But actually, you know, the new finance minister, Mr. Schultz, has actually driven quite a change in thinking and so Germany have bought into this idea of um, a European recovery fund. And I think they were faced with the issue in reality that actually, you know, the European project, if they hadn't done this, would have been in a degree of crisis point. Because, you know, very simplistically, the virus was hitting uh, the southern states worse than the northern states. And so actually, if the northern states didn't really come and help the southern states at that point of greatest need with some transfers, then sort of what is the European project for? And I think that was their thinking. So Um, that keeps the project together, but does it also make it a a less deflationary, kind of boring continent where there's no growth? Does it make it more of a growth eurozone now? Well, I I think what it does is it gives a degree of underpin to to growth expectations. I think what you want as an investor is is really sort of modest growth. And then within that, you pick the companies that are best placed to to outperform. How much can you invest in in Europe or outside the UK? Because it's a a UK-focused trust. We can, and we use this, we can invest up to 20% overseas. So at the moment, um, for example, just to give you a flavor of a couple of companies which we own, we own NXP, which is a global leader in, in semis, semiconductors. 
and it's got a really peach of a position in autos. And um, what's happening there is obviously as the auto industry changes and you think about things like EVs or assisted driving or indeed trading up, you know, any of these avenues require dramatically more semis and an NXP is really benefiting from that. Indeed, it had a pre-announcement the other day where it upgraded expectations. So that's one. Uh, we also own uh, a couple of the gold stocks. And there, what we see, obviously, is with the gold price at its current level, you know, the reality is their margins are pretty much at all-time highs, and there's a lot more capital discipline in the industry than there was. Now, those aren't European stocks, presumably? No, those are um, US stocks. The one European stock we own is, is called KPN. KPN, you may have read, received an approach possibly on Friday on the wires from EQT, which is a um, private um, private equity firm. Uh, so the shares were have been quite strong over the last uh, four or five days. And we'll see whether that leads to a bid happening. Yeah. And we're seeing, and switching back to the UK, we're seeing uh, uh, more bids coming through for, for UK uh, equities. Uh, UK shares obviously have been... Uh, under the weather, out of favour, sort of with international investors for, for some time. You know, you sound quite uh, positive. I just want to just go through some of the, the, the big stocks you've added or increased since taking over. Yep. You know, you've got um, you know, Tesco's, sounds quite, that's a, one of your highest conviction uh, positions, I think. You've got yes. more than the, um, the FTSE All Share would indicate, for example. Yes. Uh, you've got Hargreaves Lansdowne, though, that sounds a bit more growth. Unilever, that's a very solid company, but I think was a, a, a new position, or certainly an increased position, uh, compared to uh, what Mark Barnett held. Yeah, I'll just go back to the point that there's a mixture of defence and, uh, and, and, and growth in there. But on the drugs, on the on the drug stocks, the pharmaceutical stocks uh, in Europe, you bought uh, Roche in place of Glaxo. But I think you bought back into Glaxo recently. Is that no? We um, we we decided um, we decided that actually we we would sell Glaxo. You know, Glaxo is it's a business which under relatively new management, Emma Wormsley and uh, Hal Barron in the R&D side, you know, I think is making decent strides to improve that business. But the reality is we think it's really got too many challenges on too many fronts. So we decided to sell it. And within uh, the pharmaceutical sector, we have AstraZeneca and Roche. I mean, actually, funny enough, the ones, you know, within that broad sector, actually, I would say to you, and it comes back to some of the Vs I was talking about earlier, you know, one of our biggest positions is actually uh, in Smith and Nephew, because you know, Smith and Nephew is, I think, is a really good microcosm of the UK equity market in a funny sort of way. Because, you know, here you've got a, a company with a very long history, you know, fascinating long term history, and with an amazingly global footprint reflecting, you know, the Commonwealth and all these sort of things, decent positions in China, really good technology, but it's been slightly undermanaged. And actually, what you've got now is you've got a business under uh, Swiss uh, management uh, that is actually moving up its sales growth to the sort of 
the hallowed land of four to five percent medium term. And that gives it the operating leverage, which actually makes it a very interesting investment. Now, the reality is in the very short term, what you've obviously seen with hospitals prioritizing, you know, obviously uh, the virus issue, you've got a n- number of deferments to operations in, uh, you know, hips, knees, sports industries, injuries, etc. But, you know, the reality is because these are very profitable operations for surgeons, they are prioritizing them and getting them back fast, okay? So it's a classic example of of the V. Yes, as you rightly said, you know, at the total economy level, perhaps the V is a bit blunted, but make no mistake, there's some really interesting Vs going on at the moment. And, you know, uh, Smith & Nephew is in one of those. And uh, another might be uh, in, um, I can never know how to pronounce this, but the uh, academic scientific publisher, uh, RELCS, R-E-L-X. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, RELX is, you know, RELX has obviously got um, quite a big events business, which obviously, uh, you know, is is taking a pause. Um, oh, you can tell Situ all about that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a nightmare for publishers, except it does lead to a renaissance uh, in uh, online events. Hence, uh, yeah. us speaking together. Well, example. You know, basically, the event side um, is driving sort of short term downgrades. But actually, it's, in terms of the value in the business, it's really in the data analytics, analytics side. And that's why we've begun gently to buy it. Uh, they've got a statement towards the end of the month and we'll see how it goes and, you know, we'll gradually build a position. OK, brilliant. Well, listen, we, we talked about quite a few stocks and uh, relics you, you, were, you were adding uh, last month, according to the, the latest fact sheet. So, so that's all good. Just sort of more broadly, you know, the investment trust like Edinburgh can gear, can use borrowing to increase the amount they're investing in the stock markets. And uh, Edinburgh's got a long-standing loan or debenture um, that, that it, you can uh, dip into. What is current position on on, on, on gearing? How much? Um, because it's a it's a useful gorge of your um, optimism or confidence. How much of that gearing uh, are you using at the moment? Yeah. So we've um, we as you rightly said, we've got a debenture, and then we've got a, a facility which we can also use, and we are using the whole of the debenture. So effectively means we're about 10% geared, a little under, a little, yeah, 10% geared. Okay, that's an increase from a couple of months ago, you were about 8%, I think. Yes, so we, it shows that we are, you know, positive about the near term. Yeah, positive, but not reckless. (laughs) Uh, Because you could go higher, you can go up to 25%, I think. Absolutely, because, you know, the reality is, Gavin, I've pointed to some interesting possibilities in the six month time frame but you know the reality is the near-term chapters are frankly a bit uncertain so actually when we've been you know reorientating the portfolio we've been doing it relatively slowly and we've been doing it where we have actually increased if you like sort of reopening plays we've been buying in in the companies like sort of compass for example the catering company. Now, the reality is, obviously, parts of their business are pretty tough at the moment. But actually, because they've got a strong balance sheet, and because customers, obviously, at a time like this, are prioritising trusted suppliers, you know, the likes of Compass in its new business wins is still standout. And it's still its big USP, which is its scale allows it to buy about 5% cheaper, is a big grinding competitive advantage. 
So in a way, it doesn't really matter when economies get back to normal for the likes of Compass, because actually if it takes a bit longer, its competition will be weaker and it'll be, be stronger. And so its medium-term earnings power will be even stronger. So this is, this is what we spend so much time as a team looking at is the market positions, really trying to find the strong market players in every area. We don't spend a massive amount of time, you know, we've had some good chats on the macro, if you like, but actually the macro is really only about 15% of our thinking. But the epicenter and the, the brain of Majedi is very much focused on the stocks themselves, because that's really what we're up, what, what, what we're um. Well, that's uh, reassuring to hear, James. Of course, the challenge for uh, investors and, and for you is that uh, it's the short-term uncertainty that is reflected in the share price and, and, and not the kind of long-term confidence that you're... Um, that you're seeing, but of course... May, may I just say that, you know, it, it is a cliche, but it's a, it's a nice cliche that actually you don't get good share prices when the news is fantastic. Because we like... Because bad news sells? The buying opportunities happen when there's a lot of uncertainty. Of course. You know, if anyone listening to this video wants to write down a laundry list of issues... You know, there is quite a long list of issues and uncertainties, but that is part of the reason, uh, you know, the UK equity market has been something of a pariah, and that creates the opportunity. And in Edinburgh Investment Trust, you've not only got the opportunity of the UK equity market, you've got a sidecar of the UK, uh, of the global side, and it trades at a discount. And it's been managed by a, a nice, settled team. So I think it's a pretty nice cocktail. Okay. Now, we've talked a lot about Edinburgh and we've talked a lot about the stocks you've been buying and, and selling in your outlook. You do uh, run with Chris, you do run a couple of other funds, open ended funds, the Majedi uh, UK Equity and uh, UK Focus. I imagine the Focus one is uh, more focused and has a smaller number of holdings, some more high conviction uh, positions. And the uh, UK equity is, is the reverse, has more, holds more stocks. If uh, an Edinburgh investor, shareholder wants to get a, a better idea of your longer term track record, um, they would look at those funds. Which one is more is closer to, to Edinburgh? Is it the UK equity or UK focus? Well, the UK, I was managing both of those funds up until um, December, December 2019, but I passed over... Uh, my sub-portfolio of the Focus Fund uh, to a colleague, Mark Warrior, but I continue to manage the UK Equity Fund. And so really the UK Equity Fund is the nearest, um, the nearest analogy. Okay. But what I will uh, also say to you is that, you know, because we manage our funds on a team-based collegiate approach, you would find, you know, the biggest ideas across uh, most of the portfolios. Okay, and what does the you know how would you describe the performance uh, of UK equity past five, ten years or so? As I said, I think sort of near the beginning, you and Chris, uh, you know, had a, a long period where you were both uh, had a citywide rating for um, the good performance you were generating over sort of three year periods, broadly speaking. But you know, since two thousand sixteen, you've not had that rating. You know, the longer term returns of the funds are perfectly okay, but um, you know, what's what have been the challenges that you've faced on those funds in in recent years? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, as you rightly say, the Focus Fund has had a good long-term record over uh, most time periods. And the UK Equity Fund over not over the last 12 months, because over the last 12 months, it's very much regained its mojo. But over a period before that, we had, um, in terms of the uh, the portfolio as a whole, our small cap, um, our small cap portfolio was a bit of a drag on performance. Uh, we've actually addressed that and hired a new manager in the shape of John King, who joined us uh, earlier this year. And I'm pleased to say that he, in conjunction with Emily Barnard, is already producing much better uh, performance numbers there. And, you know, maybe the portfolio wasn't, uh, didn't have enough of a growth quotient in it. That would be another issue. But, you know, the big, big issue is that we, we recognize the issues we address them, and already the fund is back where it should be, which is you know outperforming over a rolling twelve month period. You know, make no mistake, all the sort of funds in the in the in the stable, if I use that word, are actually you know performing nicely. Okay, well that's uh, that's good to hear. Uh, on that note, I should mention another uh, investment company, another investment trust that uh, you're linked to, which is the uh, Majadi Investments, uh, which is uh, we were. You, know, you were mentioning how a 13% discount on Edinburgh represents a bargain. It's a, I think it's a similar position with uh, with Majadi. So Majadi is like a fund of funds, but it's investing in all the Majadi funds plus the shares of the uh, private um, fund management company that you work for, Majadi Asset Management. You're the CIO, Chief Investment Officer at Majadi. What, what's your? Do you have a, a formal role at um, at the investment trust, or how, how does it work? Or is it just simply investing in your fund? Yeah, so um, the Majedi Investment Trust, the asset allocation is driven by the board of uh, Majedi Investments. We, as you rightly say, manage um, the funds that form part of that trust. And there is also, as part of their assets, is a holding in a 17% of the equity of Majedi Asset Management is, is held by Majedi Investments, on which they get dividend income and, and the like. So it is, a, if you like, it's a, it's a group of funds um, from the Majedi, the Majedi stable with uh, an investment in um, Majedi asset, uh, asset management. And as you rightly say, you know, currently it's, it's on a discount. I think in reality, as you'll be aware, you know, many of the uh, smaller trusts in terms of market cap trade at slightly wider discounts. And, you know, this is, this is, this is no different. That's right. Yeah, Majadi is, is about is valued at about hundred million pounds. So it's, a, it's considerably smaller than the than Edinburgh, uh, which, despite its uh, its problems in the past, is still a, a sizable fund and uh, a sort of a liquid uh, investment. The shares are easy to buy and sell. With Majadi, uh, there's um, well, there's a big family holding, isn't there? There's a Barlow family that own uh, a, a, a lot of the shares. Uh, they're a wealthy family who made their uh, money originally in Malaysian rubber plantations. I was I was reading before this, and, and Aviva, the insurance company, has. Um, Got a big stake, so there's uh, maybe not as easy to trade in and out as as, as Edinburgh, but um, perhaps if what you're suggesting, and there's been a bit of a turnaround, and uh, in some of the the, the, the Majadi funds, it's, it could be one to, to one to watch because uh, there's a sizable 23% discount actually, so even wider 
than uh, than Edinburgh. Well, um, James, uh, I'm running out of questions, but uh, it's been uh, fabulous to talk to you. But I think um, so. The main thing that's coming out of here is that uh, you know people have got to wait and see what you do with with Edinburgh. But um, they shouldn't be too pessimistic. Both things are really difficult uh, at the moment in our lives in terms of the politics and the way we deal with the the pandemic. But in terms of the stock market, there's uh, seems to be plenty of opportunities, plenty of Vs uh, is what I keep hearing from you today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we we really shouldn't over-obsess about the short term. And actually, if you buy into that as, as an issue, actually in Edinburgh Investment Trust, uh, you have a fund that is on a quite a meaningful discount where you've seen a manager change and the new manager now is someone who's got a decent long-term record backed by a, a fantastically good team of analysts in an asset category that has been something of a, you know, a Cinderella. Uh, so it's a really, I think it's a really interesting time to be thinking about Edinburgh Investment Trust, actually. Um, and that is the message which I've got to, you know, get on the road to and, um, and, and obviously preach to narrow that discount because it's very much a project that I'm, I want to, I, I want to achieve. Okay, well, James, if you if, if you get it right, if you put it all together, it could be a very interesting one one to watch. It could be a triple whammy, not a double whammy, going on for, if, if all those things uh, move in the right direction. But we'll uh, learn more at the half year results next month, and hopefully we'll get some clarity on on the dividend as well. But uh, in the meantime, James, uh, very good to talk to you, and uh, thanks for spending time with me. Thanks, Kevin. Good to see. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.